2: better make it quick. I'm Osher Ginsburg. This is the Wednesday version of Better Than Yesterday, which is here to help make your day today better than yesterday. If this is your first time listening, maybe go check out a Friday or a Monday. I'll, I'll, there's more about why the show is what it is there. This is the quick version that I'd love to hit you with on a, on a Wednesday. We're going back to 2019 to talk with uh, playwright, author, cyclist, and oh, I don't know, Oscar-winning director, Brian Fogel. Yeah, he loves riding bikes. He's also best known for his documentary, Icarus, which blew open the world of illegal performance-enhancing doping in sport. He's an exceptionally driven human being. And it seems like he has been from the very beginning.
3: I had um, uh, pretty bad uh, asthma as a kid. I guess I technically still do, but I've been taking this uh, drug called Advair for about 20 years that now I believe that I don't have asthma, even though if I don't take this drug for a year, I, for a day, I realize that I do, but... Um, But I was, uh, I I was struggling with asthma and I was ski racing in the winters. And all the guys who were uh, ski racing were into cycling. And this was right about the time of uh, 1986. And Greg LeMond had just won the tour and it was getting news in the US. And I was like, oh, it looks kind of cool. And um, my parents wouldn't get me a bike, but I wanted to ride bikes. And the doctor was like, oh, he's wasting his time riding a bike. You know, he's, He's got asthma. And I was like, well, screw that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get a bike. And so I started up a little car, uh, detailing business, uh, out of my parents' driveway. I was uh, 13 years old and I spent the whole summer going door to door to door, basically trying to convince neighbors to drop their car off in in my uh, parents' driveway in the morning. And I would wash their cars, you know, in the summer and they could pick it up, you know, in the, in the evening. And, um, I got a good little racket going, and um, a couple months later, I had saved up like six hundred bucks, and I bought this Trek five hundred and sixty. It was purple sparkles with yellow Trek decals, with yellow handlebar tape, as purple as purple could get. And I got my first bike, and uh, I uh, I basically shut down the car detailing business at that <laughs> point because <laughs> I got the bike, and uh, and off I went. So I. Uh, So it's been like uh, just a a constant thing in my life throughout going on, I don't know, 30 years.
2: Yeah, but it got pretty serious for you. But I'm guessing you know cycling was always a part of your week, uh, whether it be a group ride on the weekend or a ride in the day. You're obviously quite committed to it. But it it got to a point where you wanted to start challenging yourself, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, actually, um, I I had stopped racing um, when I was about 20. I was in this uh, pretty brutal crash i was up in canada it was pouring rain i was actually in the breakaway i was probably gonna have the greatest result i had ever had I was i thought i might even win it there was like five six of us left and uh, i ate a wheel and i knocked out uh i ended up getting eight root canals this tooth totally gone it was brutal and um Um, that accident really kind of set me back and made me go, maybe I don't really want to race bikes. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any future career in this. And um, so I kind of stopped racing, but continued riding, you know, just as a hobby. And then 2013 came along and Lance confessed. And I was still really just riding, but not racing. I I stopped racing, you know, I mean, uh, uh, for I think I can't remember what year I stopped racing. I stopped racing in 1991 or something. But he had he had confessed to doping, and and of course anybody who enjoys the sport was always kind of going, okay, well, what does this do? What does it not do? What's the big deal? And for a guy like me, who's ridden his whole life, I was always curious with the idea of what my potential might have been, or had I doped, could have I maybe have been a pro? What what would have it done for me? And And it seems so undefined other than this broad term, blanket term of a doper, you know, and I'm going, okay, what does that really do? And so I, I got kind of, I guess, curious and obsessed with a, the, the notion of what do these drugs do? And I was, and I was riding a lot, just recreationally. Um, but I had this, you know, feeling like maybe I could beat my Strava times, you know, maybe I could what, what was my potential? And at the same time, what, what seemed very very clear to me was that the anti doping system in sport, not cycling, but all of sport, um, clearly didn't work and was, in my opinion, a fraud. Because if the most tested athlete on the planet could get through five hundred tests clean, and to this day, you know, Armstrong has never actually failed a test. So, if the most tested athlete on the planet can get through five hundred tests clean, what does this mean for every sport for, you know, forget about cycling. And so it it became this kind of idea for me of what are actually my limits? How fast can I be? And does this anti-doping system, which is doing a really good job of publicly outing and shaming people, but yet they don't seem to have any answers out as to how to actually catch people other than to get their teammates to rat, rat them out in exchange for their own immunity which is what happened in the case of Lance.
2: So you were quite curious, obviously that there was a time in your life when racing was quite a thing before your accident, but you're wondering like, well, what if I was on the gear? What could I have been? Would I, you know, would I have won more breakaways? Would I've got attention of bigger teams? Would I have gone to Europe? All that kind of stuff. It must have made you think, and it certainly would make young athletes think, I'm sure, that there's a point when you're 18, 19, 20, and you're like, well, I can only be doing this for so long before I'm going to have to start thinking about what else I'm going to do with my career. But if I get on some stuff that can help me get better times or get better results, this right. might be- become my profession.
3: I, I think it's certainly a, a curiosity, and I think it opens the door to that kind of discussion, which is, okay, well, if you don't do it, then you're being left out. And if you're not going to be caught, then why not? And and so that was, you know, for for originally as I started on, you know, making Icarus, um, my idea was really twofold was, A, to show an audience what these drugs do, what they don't do, how fast can you get, how, how much do they improve your imp- performance. Is, is it snake oil? Is it all that it's cracked out to be? And two, does the global anti-doping systems in sport work? Um, And if it doesn't, okay, what, what do we do or not do about it? But hypothetically, what Armstrong did, could that still be gotten away with?
2: One thing I have learned over the years of doing this show and my career is, it is exceptionally hard to get things made. So I was curious as to how Brian's movie, Icarus actually got off the ground.
3: In the entertainment business, you reach a certain point, it's just filled with ups and downs and ups and downs and you know and and it's feast or famine. And I had um, in the years prior, um I had created this play. the play went to New York and played for three years in a three hundred seat theater off Broadway. It had had touring productions of it. I'd done a book. and then I had held on to direct um, a film adaptation that I had written of, you know, basically adapting the plan to film. And that experience turned into something very, very stressful for me. Uh, I didn't have enough money to, to make it. I had a 26 day shoot that got turned into a 19 day shoot oh after a week of shooting because the producer didn't want to pony up the money to make the film union. That's a whole other story. And I came out of this film that I thought was going to be kind of my break that was going to get me work and was going to set me on a new trajectory in life and I came out of this essentially broke with no career I, I viewed myself that I was in director's jail the mythical jail of you know you make a movie and it's not a success and then you're never going to make another one and so I, I was in this literally you know turning 40 and going what the fuck am I going to do with my life I'm I'm literally 40 I'm basically broke my I had a career all through my 30s at a play. I was acting. I was producing. I had traveling shows. I did a movie. You know, I, I had done just fine. And all of a sudden, I'm going 10 years later, I'm going, I'm screwed. And so, the start of this film for me at the time was as much about, okay, do or die, make or break. Can I get myself back on the map? And when I started, I was able to raise after about a year, 350,000 bucks to basically just get me going. And I had budgeted out that that 350,000 would basically take me through the first year. And at the end of the first year, I'd be able to create like a, a piece from it. Hopefully it was on track. It was going well. And I'd use that short, that 25 minute sizzle as I called it to go out and raise more money. And, um, And that's ultimately what happened. But the year before I started on Icarus, I was in probably the, you know, one of the lowest depressed places in my life of trying to figure out how I was going to, you know, reinvent myself. And for the first, you know, couple years of of Icarus, I was paying myself a little bit, but it wasn't really enough to get by. So I was was like, I'm my entire job was making this film. And I was able to just take enough from it to continue to pay my bills for that time.
2: How far along uh, in that first year, or how how far along in it were you? I mean, for people who haven't seen the film, I won't spoil the ending, but basically Brian, uh, he uh, – Signs up to the, basically the, the world's hardest amateur cycling race. It's as hard as you can get before you go pro. And he competes in it and then goes, well, this is as well as I got. How would I go if I was on all this gear? And started to track down the people that could help him. And one of those people you found was um, Gregory Uchenkov, who is now in witness protection, but we'll get to that. How far into the process did you find this guy and how could you actually quite believe it the, the first time you, you spoke to him?
3: I actually found him really early on in the, um, in the film as a narrative device. I bring him in basically right after I had done the race clean for the first year and was getting ready to dope. Um, but I had actually started to talk to him before I even got my fundraising in place. And it was actually during those Sochi Olympics that we started emailing. And so that was like February 2014. And I had reached out not with the notion initially that of would you help me dope and teach me what to do and help me test my samples and get away with it. I had reached out to him with the notion of you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I had already directed the movie. And the movie that I directed, uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt starred in it. And he loved Jennifer Love Hewitt. So he's like, oh, you directed a movie with Jennifer Love Hewitt. This is great. So, and so he was literally uh, you know, at the time basically uh, excited to talk to me because I had directed a movie with Jennifer Love Hewitt. And, uh, and so I had, I had reached out with the idea that, you know, hey, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm a cyclist. I'm an athlete. and I'm curious of whether or not the, the anti-doping system in sport uh, works and whether or not what, what Lance Armstrong did, if you could still get away with it. And he engaged with me in, in emails as I go back and look at those emails. They're being sent about four o'clock Russian time. So he was like, I guess, smuggling urine uh, you know, dumping out clean samples for dirty samples in, in the shadow laboratory at the Sochi Olympics while he was emailing me. And uh, he invites me to go meet him in Oregon. And this is now in July of 2014, I'd got um, my first uh, bit of money to get started on it. And I go to meet him not knowing whether or not he's going to be my doping guru doctor, but hoping that maybe this guy would. And we bond over a couple days. And long story short, he agrees to help me dope, agrees that he'll help me bring my samples in through his laboratory to test them. And develop a protocol for me, which obviously is pretty shocking, coming from the same guy who had just conducted all of the testing for the Sochi Olympic Games and was also conducting all the testing for all of Russia's athletes. So I was like, wow, jackpot. I think I got a movie. This, this <laughs> is, you know, forget about anything else. I mean, this is wild. Yeah. And so, uh, so off I went quite
2: an amazing story. So many things just had to happen perfectly for the film to get made. It wasn't without its danger, though. It turns out, well, the Russian government actually got involved at one point. We'll hear how right after this.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: Now, as we've heard, Brian enlisted the help of Dr. Gregory Rychenkov, who is now living under witness protection, yeah, for the rest of his life. Brian's calls with the man were being monitored. They were being played out on Russian television. I asked him, how did it feel to realize that you are getting involved with people that don't mess around?
3: We were dealing with that reality for a while, and I think, um, you know, a lot of times, or maybe it's just me, but, you know, you just get so far into something, and you're just kind of like, "All right, well, I'm just in it." <laughs> and and that was kind of the case of this. Like, I, I was in something; it was so crazy. The story was so much bigger than me. It was so beyond um, myself. I I had a, a friendship, an allegiance to Gregory, and um, and a true desire and commitment to bring the story forward. That I, I guess you know I wasn't thinking on a daily basis or or really focusing on anything that would, um, I don't know, infringe on my desire to do that in the sense of, of safety. But it is certainly surreal when you understand the intelligence and surveillance capabilities of governments, of countries that are able to do these kind of things where, you know, you read about it and you see it in movies, but then when you see it happen and I'm going Wait, how did they get all those photos? Why are those photos on Russian television? How do they have those Skype calls that we made recorded? How, like, I mean, and you go, wow, this, this is, this is real. This is real. I mean, we, we saw this, you know, just recently, you know, with the, uh, with the murder of, uh, of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, and all of a sudden, you know, a few days later, it's emerging that the murder was recorded, and that the Saudi consul was under surveillance, and they, yeah, I mean, in, you're going, whoa, this is, this is real. This is there. These capabilities are there and they are being used and whether or not it actually comes public is another thing. But I, I think it's safe to assume that if you're a person of any interest um, or if the government wants to spy on you or record uh, you or do whatever it is, look at what just happened with Jeff Bezos. You know, there's, you know, the, the capabilities are out there and they're, and they're very easy to exploit, I guess, if you're a country with the resources to do that.
2: Now, did it make you think twice about going to certain countries or did you ever get worried when you were traveling? Would do you call someone and go, hey, by the way, the Russian government's hacking me and uh, <laughs> I'm a bit worried. Do you have to call someone?
3: Um, I love Russia. I, uh, needless to say, I, I I don't have any plans to return there anytime in the near future. Um, even though, you know, I, I think it's it's a great place. Moscow is an amazing city. So is St. Petersburg. And the people are awesome. But, you know, I don't think I'd really want to play with that kind of fire. But on the other hand, I'm not going to stop living my life. I mean, you know, if anybody wants to get you, I guess they're going to get you. And that's just what it is. So you know, <laughs> Try not to to focus too much about that.
2: How do you deal with not just the, you know, because not everyone's going to be making a, a documentary film. Um, you know, obviously, you're making a new film right now. Probably you're leveling up on whatever it is you just did. How do you deal day to day with the stresses that do come with making films that have such an extraordinary impact and are whistleblowing in, in such a massive way? What do you do to keep your, you your know, head, to, head together?
3: Well, uh, I, you know, you just, you just focus on what you do. And um, when you, if, if you're focused in on what you're doing, then you're able to drown out other noise. I mean, I find that same thing for myself as when I go out on a bike ride, you know, if you're, you know, you're focused on the road ahead, you're focused on that moment ahead, rather than thinking a hundred steps ahead. And so, you know, I find that that's very useful for me in work. I mean, I have new projects that I'm, that I'm on right now and and it's the same thing. I can I can imagine, or visualize what I hope that outcome to, can be. But right now, I'm only just thinking about what is today, what is tomorrow, what is a week from now, and how to execute those things to to the best of my ability.
2: You bite it off into small little chunks.
3: Yeah. If you yeah. if you if you start thinking about it, which I do all the time. You know, you're going, oh my god, I had to. Build the whole house. That doesn't work. You just have to go. Okay, where do I, where do I start? Okay, I'll, you know, I'll plant a little grass, <laughs> and and day by day, you, the map kind of presents itself, and that's kind of how how I think of things and how this film played out. I mean, it was over three and a half years, and then there was another year of marketing um, that took me full time after that, and then you know the story is still actually continuing to unfold. So you do what you you do and I try not to just focus too much on worrying about things that I can't control.
2: Massive thanks to Brian Fogel for saying yes to being on the show. Brilliant to have him here. You can scroll through the podcast feed to hear the full episode 291 in the podcast feed. Um, Also check out the movie Icarus. You can find it on streaming sites. It's brilliant, brilliant movie. Terrifying, but incredible. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. Thanks to Bree Steele who produced this episode, Andy Maher for editing it, Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of The Lot, Toe Hider on the music, and you for listening. Thanks for being here. I'll talk to you Friday. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.